All right, welcome everybody to part number two of this series we're calling When God Doesn't Make Sense. So I don't know how things work in your life or how you were brought up, but uh, the, the kind of my natural inclination is that if I'm living right, then things should go right. You know what I'm saying? Like if I'm being nice and helping people out and just kind of being a, a gentleman, then I feel like things should go good for me and in my life. And I shouldn't have to worry about some of the things, you know, happening, some bad things happening because the way I'm living is good. But as I've read through the Bible and just done a life, I have found that that is not typically how things work out. There is no such thing as karma. Truth be told, as I've studied Scripture, I've found that the Bible and God can lead you out of hardship, but it can also lead you in to hardship. Faith can put you in some difficult spots. I mean, Jesus followed God perfectly, and he was still betrayed by his closest friends. He was still put through a mock trial, and he was still executed in the most painful way known to human beings. He essentially smothered to death, choked on his blood, and died naked hanging on a cross. Towards the end of it all, he calls out to God, says, God, why have you forsaken me? And you know what God says? Nothing. Silence. Talk about when God doesn't make sense. You know, we know that it was really bleak towards the end, and Jesus was really struggling with it, because aside from uh, praying drops of blood. He showed up at the Last Supper and he told his disciples, we've got no food, we've got no jobs, our pets' heads are falling off. That's not true. That's from Dumb and Dumber. And two, like two of you were with me, but that's okay. Uh, you watch it on your own. But it's within the realm of possibility. I don't know if you struggle with this idea of God being present or not, but Jesus did. And in order to try and navigate this situation of pain and suffering and why would God allow wicked things to happen, things like mass shootings and things like fires and tornadoes and abuse and human trafficking and just the evil we see in this world, why would God allow that? In order to try and find an answer, we've turned to a guy in Scripture named Job which if you're a guest with us or just back for the first time in a long time, let me quickly try and catch us up. In the very beginning of the story of Job, found in the book conveniently titled Job, uh, we're introduced to Job, and the Bible makes it clear that not only is Job the richest man on the planet, but he's also the most godly. And in kind of a weird turn of events, we're brought into the throne room of God, where God is meeting with his cabinet of angels, kind of his inner circle, and they're debriefing on what's going on on the earth and in the world. And uh, the accuser, uh, the Satan in Hebrew, Satan literally means accuser, he shows up and begins a conversation with God as well. And he starts having a debate about Job. Satan looks at Job and says, he's a phony. Sure, he's uh, good to God and he's good to other people, but he's not good to God for God's sake. And he's not good to other people for other people's sake. He's good to God and good to other people for his own sake. Says to God, look how much you're blessing him. That's why he's good. If you'll 
strike him with some infirmity, if you'll take away his money, if you'll take away his family, he will curse you to your face. Bring suffering into his life, and he won't be good anymore. Satan wants to bring suffering into Job's life in order to expose him as a fraud. He wants him discredited. God, however, lets Satan bring that suffering into his life, but only gives Satan enough rope to hang himself. God only brings uh, enough suffering into Job's life and allows Satan to do that in order to accomplish the very opposite of what Satan wanted to accomplish. Again, Satan wants him discredited, exposed as a fraud, but as a result of the suffering, Job has a name that lives on forever. So the point I was trying to make last week is that one of the reasons, a reason, God might allow suffering in our lives is to defeat the accuser's plan for your life. Satan wants you discredited as well, and God doesn't allow it. Now this is important, so listen to me. That's not the only reason why. In fact, the overarching theme of the book of Job is to show us we don't really know why there is evil and why God allows it to happen. God never clues us in on that, and God never clues Job in on that. We'll talk more about that later, but the big idea from last week is that even though we can have hope, if you are a follower of Jesus, you can have hope of a future with no suffering one day, but in the meantime, it's important to realize that hurting with hope still hurts. It's an important distinction moving forward. The Bible never sugarcoats the fact that hurting with hope still hurts. And it also doesn't try and hide hurting within the Bible. And so this morning, I want to continue the conversation with a message I'm calling Drama and the Baby Mama. Y'all know what I'm talking about? More in most people's experience is with uh, drama with the baby mama. That's certainly the case with Joe, but there's more drama after the baby mama drama, and that's the drama that we're going to spend the bulk of our time on this morning. So if you brought a Bible, and I hope you did, go ahead and grab it. Meet me in Job chapter 2. If you didn't bring a Bible, that's okay. We'll put the messages or the, the verses here on the screen for you. But if you flat out do not own a Bible, please stop by Connection Corner and grab one on your way out. That's our gift to you. Just as a way of reminder in Job chapter 1, Job has lost everything. His money, his wealth, his livestock, uh, his 10 children have died. We know that raiders and thieves have come in and stolen his crops and murdered his servants because everybody knows that all raiders are thieves. Come on, somebody. You know what I'm preaching about? I'm saying, uh, let's go, Chiefs. But uh, so he's broke, he's destitute, he's alone, and it's about to get worse. Chapter 2, verse 1. One day, the members of the heavenly court came again to present themselves before the Lord, and the accuser, in Hebrew, the Satan, came with them. Where have you come from? The Lord asked Satan. Satan answered the Lord, I've been patrolling the earth, watching everything that's going on. First Peter 5, 8 will tell you that the devil roams the earth like a prowling lion looking for someone to devour. Then the Lord asked Satan, have you noticed my servant Job? 
He's the finest man in all the earth. He is blameless, a man of complete integrity. He fears God and stays away from evil. And he has maintained his integrity, even though you urged me to harm him without cause. Satan replied to the Lord, skin for skin. A man will give up everything he has to save his life, but reach out and take away his health, and he will surely curse you to your face. Again, God found no fault with Job, but the devil did. It's important. All right, do with him as you please, the Lord said to Satan, but spare his life. So Satan left the Lord's presence, and he struck Job with terrible boils from head to foot. Job scraped his skin with a piece of pottery as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, are you still trying to maintain your integrity? Just curse God and die. Dang, girl. All the flavors in the world and you choose to be salty. Job replied, you talk like a foolish woman. Men, maybe don't use that one in your life. That maybe needs to stay in the Bible, okay? Uh, Tried that once, didn't end well. You know what I'm saying? Uh, One of Laura's friends called me. And she was concerned for my safety because I guess Laura and, and her friends were out to supper. And she said, you know what you call a guy with two black eyes? Nothing. You done told him twice. <laughs> That's not true. Don't tell her I said that because I will. <laughs> Where was I at? Yeah. So should we accept only good things from the hand of God and never anything bad? So when all this, Job said nothing wrong. When three of Job's friends heard of the tragedy he had suffered, they got together and traveled from their homes to comfort and console him. Their names were Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite. I know there's some pregnant gals here today. If you're struggling with names, these are all still available, okay? Uh, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar. So... Please, somebody name their child Bildad. That would be amazing. When they saw Job from a distance, they scarcely recognized... If your name is Bildad, I apologize on the front end. That's, that's on me. When they saw Job from a distance, they scarcely recognized him. Wailing loudly, they tore their robes and threw dust into the air over their heads to show their grief. When they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights, no one said a word to Job, for they saw that his suffering was too great for words. Sometimes the best thing that you can do in somebody's life is just sit there and be with them and keep your mouth closed and just mourn when they mourn and rejoice when they rejoice. God, thank you for your word. We just ask you now to do what only you can do and speak to us, open up our hearts and our minds. These are some difficult things that we're trying to wade through. And so we're just asking for your wisdom and your Holy Spirit to come powerfully in this place and speak to us where we are and move us to where you want us to be. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. The word drama, as I'm using the term, is a way of relating to the world in such a way that consistently overreacts and greatly exaggerates the importance of benign events. And the reason I've found that people cause drama or participate in drama is to draw attention to themselves. Some people's whole mission in life is drama. 
and to bring people into their suffering because misery loves company, but uh, it's why I can't be on social media anymore because there's just too much drama for me. As a matter of fact, there are people in our world who make millions of dollars selling and exploiting drama. Anybody you know, still keeping up with the Kardashians? You know what I'm talking about here with drama? And they make millions of dollars bringing people into their mess, whether scripted or not. And what this tells us about Western culture specifically is that most people's plight is not their problem, it's their perspective. That they're looking through the world through the lenses of drama. Said another way, most people's problem is not their circumstances, it's their frame of reference. It's the context that they find themselves in. They want drama, and so everything that they see happens to be drama. And so they ask the question, how can I get other people involved into my own mess? And what they want is attention, because they were wronged, and they were disrespected, and those people didn't tolerate me, and everybody's got to find their own truth. And if there's any sin greater than all the other sins, it's the one of intolerance, except if you're being intolerant of my intolerance, that would also make you intolerant, but I I digress. Uh, People want to bring you in and cause you to experience the same drama that they perceive in their own mind. But if there's anything that I want you to see, which I've already alluded to, is that the best thing you can do for someone who's hurting is just be present. You don't have to say anything. You don't have to do anything. And if you find yourself incapable of not being able to say anything or do anything, then defend the person from the drama. Because in the world that we live in, with social media and the internet, and people think they can say whatever they want to whoever they want because they can hide in this shield of anonymity of just being able to type whatever they want online, and they would never say that to somebody's face. But just as an example, there's a guy named Rick Warren who's a pastor in California. He pastors a a rather large church, and his son was struggling with some mental health issues, and he ended up committing suicide. And you should have seen some of the responses people made online to Rick Warren talking about how he deserved it and blah, blah, blah. It was literally disgusting. You want to do something in life? Defend people from drama. But this is important because most people's natural inclination is to try and explain suffering when God never asks us to do that. He just asks us to love each other and be around and love Him, and trust Him. But you might want to jot this down if you're taking notes. This is not in an effort to explain suffering, but this might help you where you're at or somebody you know. Devastation is multi-dimensional. You need to know that devastation is multi-dimensional. Sometimes it is emotional. We saw that last week. Things that Job was attached to are taken away but his health was fine. And so it was emotionally devastating. And again, we know that because of his response and how uh, some of the things that he said. But we also know, according to today's text, that devastation cannot be just emotional. It can also be physical. Uh, He was struck with some physical things. And the physical nature of Job's suffering cannot be overstated. 
We know from the following passages that not only did Job have sores and scabs from head to toe, but chapter 6 tells us that he can't eat, his strength has faded. Chapter 7 says maggots are eating his scabs because they're oozing liquid. Hashtag gross. Chapter 16 says he's been reduced to skin and bones. Chapter 19 says his breath is repulsive. Chapter 30 says he has diarrhea. Awesome. You want people reading for thousands of years about the time you had the scoots? Like it's just recorded for everybody for the rest of time? Great. If you look back at verse 12 in our passage that his friends show up, it says they don't even recognize him. Needless to say, this wasn't just the chicken pox. These ailments are so painful that Job repeatedly wishes he was dead. It says, death would be better than what I'm living with. God, why was I even born? That's what he says. Uh, another example in 1 Kings chapter 19, there's a guy named Elijah. He's a prophet of God. He goes through some horrible things. He finally cracks. He thinks everything that he has worked for has been taken away and wiped away, and he falls into a deep depression. And so what started out as emotional pain and suffering ends up being solved through physical means. God sends an angel. More specifically, he sends the angel of the Lord. And when the angel of the Lord shows up to the depressed Elijah, what does he say? Nothing. Like Job's friends, he keeps his mouth shut. Instead, the angel of the Lord cooks Elijah a meal. And only after he wakes him up does he say, you need strength. Why don't you eat something? And then the angel of the Lord allows Elijah to go back to sleep. And then he wakes him up, wakes him up again and he says, you still need more strength. Why don't you eat some more? My point is, if we were just emotional beings, or if we were just spiritual beings, then the first thing you would do if you came across somebody experiencing pain and suffering, and in turn they've become depressed, is you'd get out your list of things to do. And you would say, have you prayed in faith? Have you confessed all your known sins? Have you rebuked the devil? Have you thanked God for everything? Have you claimed the promises of Jesus? Because the promises of Jesus are yes and amen. Have you uh, recited statements of positive affirmation to yourself every morning when you wake up? Do you say, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me? Uh, Because if you haven't done those things, you need to be doing those things. Now, most of that is in the Bible, but guess what? We're not just emotional beings. We're also physical beings. And maybe what you need in order to get through is a nap, like Elijah. Or maybe you need some food or a walk. Or maybe, in God's providence, you might need some medication. That is legitimate. But maybe, because we're not just physical beings and emotional beings, we're also relational beings, maybe you just need a hug. Or someone to tell you they love you. Or someone to listen to what you're going through and not try and explain it away but just listen unfortunately religious people tend to reduce everything down to spiritual and moral so you always get a lecture from them well if you just had more faith well if you just did if you just did if you just did secular people tend to see depression as all biochemical so they just give you a pill but that's just as reductionist as always giving somebody a lecture god never reduces things like that The Bible says there's a complexity about human nature, and you can't just wade in and deal with it on the same level as you do everybody else. 
And you can't deal with discouragement and depression as if it comes down to one thing. It could be a lot of things. So devastation can come emotionally. It can come physically. But it can also come spiritually. Again, it's multidimensional. What we learn with the story of Job is that sometimes your accuser is responsible for your pain. And God will use it to defeat the accuser's purposes. But listen to me. Sometimes God is responsible for your pain. Satan couldn't do anything to Job without God's permission. I'll give you another example. In the book of Genesis, you have a young man named Joseph. You remember him? He's pathologically doted upon by his father, who adores him and favors him and cares for him over all of his other brothers. And he one day decides that he's going to go to Burberry and buy him a mega huge fur coat of many colors. And as a result, the family system is poisoned. So much so that all of the brothers are murderously bitter. And Joseph himself has become arrogant and self-centered. Talk about drama. There it is with 12 brothers, and Joseph is so out of touch with how people see him, he multiple times tells his older brothers, one day you all are going to bow down before me. I don't know if you all got older brothers, but that ain't going to end well most of the time. Joseph is on the road to a miserable life, either through beatings or being alone. And God brings into his life horrible suffering. Years of slavery, years of false imprisonment, years of asking God for things, years of telling people, remember me when you're in the king's palace, and years and years of praying, and hear me, years and years of God never answering. Have you ever felt like you're in one of those situations before? Or you're calling out to God and it's been years since God's really answered any of your significant prayers and most heartfelt requests. Joseph went through all that. And he went through suffering. But at the end of the book, we get a God's eye view of what was actually going on because we're the readers. No one who is actually in the suffering ever gets the God's eye view. But we see him standing as, see Joseph standing as the prime minister of Egypt. Wise, humble, great, saving his family from starvation, spiritually and physically thriving, which none of that could have happened without all of the suffering. And what's Joseph say to his brothers, who are in fact bowing down before him, who, brothers who started the ball rolling on all of this suffering when they sold him in to slavery. What you intended for evil, God intended for good. I'll give you another example. Who was behind the crucifixion? Certainly the devil was. Scripture says the devil put it into the heart of Judas to betray the Lord for 30 pieces of silver. The devil was behind Pilate. The devil worked through the soldiers. The devil worked through religious leaders. But I'll tell you someone else who was behind the crucifixion. God. For one moment in human history, the Father and the devil were working toward the same goal. Not the same objective. Satan's objective was to kill Jesus and stop him. 
God's goal was to see the Son of God die on the cross for the sin of the world and then raise him from the dead on the third day because there was no other way for the sin of humanity to be completely atoned for. It was all the plan of God. And the Bible says it pleased the Father to bruise the Son. And so God took one of the greatest of tragedies and turned it into the one of the greatest of victories. And what that means for you is that when suffering comes into your life, it's not simply because there's some glaring flaw in your life that God is trying to deal with, but that's often our perspective. We see it again in John chapter 9 when Jesus and some of the disciples are out walking around and they encounter a blind man and the disciples ask, who sinned, this dude or his parents, because he's blind? And the only frame of reference they had in life was, I can see, I'm not a sinner, my parents didn't sin, so somebody must have sinned because this guy is blind. And so this is a very moralistic question. It's a very Job's friend kind of question because the disciples think, well, somebody must have sinned because this guy has something wrong and he's suffering clearly from his blindness. And so what does Jesus say when they ask him, who sinned, that this brother's blind? Jesus says, nobody his blindness is a result of so that the glory of God can be shown in the world. And in the same way, devastation in your life is multidimensional. It's not a result of sin. We know Romans 8 chapter 1 says that there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So God's not punishing you for anything. There might be a spiritual lesson Satan might have caused this and God is going to use it for good because Romans 8.28 does say that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. But hear me, it also might just be a result of living in a sinful world, which is what we see in John chapter 9. God can bring good out of bad, but he doesn't ever call bad good because bad is bad. What it does mean is that God can bring good despite the bad. We'll talk about that more next week when we see God show up and begin a dialogue with Job. But I thought I would point out a helpful quote to you. I found it helpful. Randy Alcorn, in his book, If God is Good, says this, If God brought eternal joy through the suffering of Jesus, can he bring eternal joy through my personal suffering and yours? If Jesus endured his suffering through anticipating the reward of unending joy, can he empower you and me to do the same? Because what's at stake for you is eternal, unending, rewarding joy. That's what's at stake at the end of your life. Alcorn goes on to say, The answer to the problem of evil and suffering is not a philosophy, but a person. Not words, but the capital W, word. Which leads me to point two. Don't let what's wrong in the world keep you from worshiping what's right with God. Don't let what's wrong in the world keep you from worshiping what is right with God. Did Job have some kind of tragic flaw that God was trying to deal with? No. We're told that God views him as innocent. 
Again, it's kind of like the man born blind. It was so that the glory of God could be revealed to the world. But Job didn't know that. And the blind man didn't know that. And Joseph didn't know that. And a guy named Paul, who wrote two-thirds of your New Testament, didn't know that. When God said, I'm going to show this man how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Point being, it's illogical when you start to suffer to try and figure out what God is trying to do. There's too many dimensions to it. So to say, oh, I know what God's trying to do. I just need to change this. He was trying to get my attention. Everything is going to be all right. That creates as much drama as saying God doesn't have any purpose. God has abandoned me. How do you know? Look at Joseph. Look at Job. Look at all these people we see in Scripture. I could have given you dozens of examples. No one can know from their vantage point, and no one can know many times after years and years and years of going through it, what in the world is God up to? So guess what? You're going to have to trust him. It's illogical to think you can figure it out or that you can see it. I can't remember who uh, said this first. I think it might have been Constantine. But he said, life is like looking through a stained glass window. Yet you're up close to it, and all you can see are the jagged lines. And one day, God's going to bring you out, and you can see the beauty of the window all put into place. You can't judge God's goodness based on this life. The real problem Job's wife and Job's friends have, and what causes all the drama, if you'll read chapters 3 through 38, is they don't understand the meaning of grace. They see the Bible as a record of people who, by living well, get God's reward and blessing. But actually read the Bible. Do you know what it's a record of? The Bible is a record of people who are so broken and so corrupt, they never would have been able to rise above their own brokenness and their own corruption except the grace of God broke into their life, usually in the form of disappointment, discouragement, and or disaster. I know that's my story. Might be some of your stories. It was only after great disappointment that I truly began to understand who God is, which is why point number three, your feelings will follow your focus. If there's anything that I want you leaving here today understanding is that your feelings will follow your focus. Job knew he did nothing wrong. Job knew God was just, but so did Job's friends. And in a tragic mistake, they decided to open their mouths. And they started explaining how all these things must be happening for such and such a reason. They started inventing sin Job must have done because God wouldn't just punish you for no reason. And they said, well, you must have done this. He's like, I never did that. And I'm like, well, just say you did it so then you can be forgiven of it. And then God will start blessing your life again. He says, but I didn't do it. Now, in fairness, Job's feelings were all over the map. He was a roller coaster of emotions, but that just proves my point that your feelings will eventually follow your focus because Job had laser sharp focus. And instead of focusing on what you have lost, you need to start uh, focusing and figuring out what you still have and what you can do with what you still have. Because God can use everything that you have gone through to make a difference in the world. 
I found this pretty interesting. Victoria Medvek studied Olympic medalists over the course of a few different Olympics. And she found that bronze medalists are quantifiably happier than silver medalists, which that should not be. Third is a turd, right? Isn't that, isn't that what they say? So there's no, there's no reason a bronze medalist should be happier than a silver medalist. So why are bronze medalists happier than silver medalists? Because a silver medalist tended to focus on how close they were to winning gold that they were discouraged about their silver medal. Whereas bronze medalists focus on how close they were to not meddling at all. And so they were just happy to be on the medal stand. In other words, how we feel is not determined by our objective circumstances. If that were true, then silver medalists would always be happier than bronze medalists because they had objectively better results. But rather, we learn feelings are perceptual And our feelings are determined by our subjective focus. Don't always trust your feelings. Trust God and the Bible. In the words of Qui-Gon Jinn, that's Star Wars if you're not a nerd, says your focus determines your reality. And there's a lot of truth to that. And if it works for the Jedi, it's good enough for me. So in the midst of your suffering, if you know God loves you, then you can handle it. Why? Because you may not know what's going on, and you will be confused because it's all multidimensional, and you won't be able to see what God is doing. But if you know that God is going to work it out for good, and that there's an eternal, unending reward of joy for you waiting on the other side, then you can get through it. That's why Paul says we can be pressed in on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed. We're perplexed, we're confused, but we're not driven to despair. We're hunted down, but we are never abandoned. We get knocked down, but we are not destroyed. Listen to me, God never told Job why. God simply revealed more of himself to Job. I think what we need in life more than an explanation of why is an encounter with God. And people need God to reveal more of himself to them. Because when we see God for who he is, you'll see your problems for what they are. Small God, big problems. Big God, small problems. Now let me draw your attention to one more vitally important passage as we kind of land the plane this morning. Where did all of this trust from Job come from? Like, how did he really get through it? Because that's the question I want you to wrestle with. Because when the storms of life come, which they will come, how can we remain anchored? And how can we remain stable? I know that when a storm comes, a boat that's anchored will get battered, but it will not move. And Job had an anchor for his soul, and I want you to have an anchor for your soul. Well, what was it? It's in your notes, Job chapter 19. But as for me, Job says, I know, circle, star, underline, highlight, whatever you do. 
I know that my Redeemer, capital R, lives. And He will stand upon the earth at last. And after my body has decayed, yet in my body I will see God. That doesn't make sense. If your body is decayed, how in your body are you going to see God? I will see Him for myself. Yes, I will see Him with my own eyes. I'm overwhelmed at the thought. Who's Job talking about? Who is this capital R Redeemer? We know, because we have the rest of the story, that Job is talking about Jesus. That Job, thousands of years before the Christ is born, is prophesying about a coming Savior who not only is going to redeem you of your sin, but He's going to raise you from the dead. That your decayed body is going to raise in a body and you're going to see God. Why is this important for you? Because Job is not Jewish. Job is not from Israel. He's from the land of Uz. And scholars tell us that the land of Uz is in the hilltop country of Seir. And that Seir was founded by Esau. Of Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. And that the people within the land of Seir are the enemies of God. And when the Israelites do show up on the scene and Moses leads them into the promised land on the way, they conquer the hilltop country of Seir. And we know that Job's friends are not Jewish. So how in the world do they have any understanding of God or any understanding of a Messiah or any understanding of a resurrection which is uniquely Christian and uniquely Jewish? I'll tell you how. And I'll tell you why it's important for you today. Because God has always been working in the world to reveal himself to humanity. Christianity isn't for good people. It's for humble people. It's for people who, like Job, have had the courage to say, I don't know what you're doing. I don't know who you are, but I know you're good. I know you're worth it. And I know you're worth trusting. I know I could never do this on my own. I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. By your grace, come and help me out. What's so magnificent about that is when you humbly submit yourself to God, God always shows up. You hearing what I'm saying? When you humbly submit yourself to God, God always shows up. And if you want to see God show up and hear the response that God has for Job, then you're going to have to come back next week for the final installment of when God doesn't make sense. Every head bowed, every eye closed. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to come and gather in this place. We're asking you now humbly for a real life encounter that your Holy Spirit would flood this room. As I look around at the faces today, I don't know how all of you came in. I don't know the struggles you faced this week, this month, this year, maybe this morning. I know that some of you are facing job problems. I know that some of you are facing the death of a loved one. I know that some of you are facing marriage problems. There's, I'm sure, depression in this room. All kinds of things. God, I'm just stepping into this place to say, move, help, 
do it again. You did it with Job. We're asking you to do it in the lives of your people here today. As we continue to pray and as God continues to speak, I just know that some of you might have come in and you don't know that your Redeemer lives. And God brought you here to hear this message that he loves you and he cares for you. And the same way he was moving in Job's life, he wants to move in yours. He just needs you to humbly submit your life to him. He needs you to say, God, I believe in your son Jesus that he's my redeemer, that my sins can be forgiven. Please save me and forgive me and change my life. God, we long to do your will, to have an encounter with you. Help us, encourage us, change our lives. Let us leave one step closer to you. We ask all this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.